you would this morning, turn with me to the book of Mark. We're about halfway through the book. We're at Mark chapter 8. We'll be looking at verse 31 through the first verse of chapter 9. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, or last week, I rather, you might have realized that really the climax of the first half of the Gospel of Mark is in chapter 8, verse 29, where Peter announces, you, speaking of Jesus, are the Christ. This is Peter's confession. And yet, as we understand the disciples and the rest of the gospel, we know that even though Peter made that confession, the disciples, including Peter, really had no idea at this point what that meant. This guy they'd been following around, Jesus, for a while now, was about to throw them the biggest curveball that perhaps the universe had ever seen. After all, Jesus, according to Matthew's account, said that that confession of Peter was not revealed to him, was not uh, known to him himself, it was revealed by God. In other words, this was revelation that they could not possibly have come to by their own conclusions. But they'll find out that the truth of this message is not what they expected or perhaps even what they thought they had signed up for. Again, this is the context Peter has just said. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 30 tells us that Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him, and we pick it up in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So we consider this teaching of God's word, this very word of God. Let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, this is your word. It shall stand forever. When it goes forth, it shall not come back empty or void. Lord, I pray that the things taught here, the things done here, the things said here and thought here would be consistent with this, your word. If it is not, Lord, let it pass away never to be heard from again. Lord, let your word dwell upon hearts that believe the gospel and upon ears that hear it because they've been opened by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I remember about 21 and a half years ago now when I was standing before my father, who was the officiant of a service in which I got the privilege of saying, I do, to Jennifer Strickland, now Irwin, in front of many family members and friends in the fellowship hall of our church building in Kingsport, Tennessee. It was a life-changing moment. And as I turned and looked at my father through part of that service, I saw that he had tears coming down his cheeks. And in our wedding, he talked about the difficult times that were to come. Now, you know, when you go to the wedding and it's a joyful thing, I don't know that you want to hear about the difficult times that are going to come. And this is what his tears were for, not that I was getting married, but for the tear difficult times that would come. You know, and, and when I look at it, I realize I had no idea how my life would change or how that commitment would play out in both pleasant times and in tough times. The tough times when things affected both of us, the tough times when we don't understand each other, the tough times when our children are both joyful but also disappoint us. All those times, and if we were to realize what we were signing up for, how many of us might be hesitant or walk out the door like some of those Christmas movies always tell us that happens? You see, this is kind of what's going on here. Peter's confession here is not good enough alone. He doesn't really understand what he's saying. He's saying, you are the Christ, but he doesn't understand the concept or content of those words. At this point, none of the disciples did. In fact, they had no idea what God's Christ really was or what it meant for them. Now, should they have, there were hints of it or even very plain words about it in the Old Testament. But you see, because Jesus is the Christ and not just a Christ or the Christ that we think Jesus should be, but because he's God's Christ, the believer's life must radically change. You see, from here, in the end of chapter 8 through chapter 10, and really the rest of the book, this is the roadway of the classroom to Jerusalem to tell us what it means to follow the Christ. First of all, our concept of Christ must change. And secondly... Our life's priorities must change. Now, don't be fooled. It's a two-point sermon. That doesn't mean you get less time. But here is a reminder, first of all, about the Christ. Peter had just said, you are the Christ. And notice what takes place in verse 31. He began to teach them something. In other words, now that this has become a public announcement amongst the disciples. This is the first time in the gospel we see this. This is a turning point in his ministry. Up to this point in Mark, Jesus has been demonstrating that he is the Christ. He has been demonstrating through his teaching and miracles and power and all those things. And you see all these people asking those questions. Who is this guy? He teaches as one with authority. Can it be that he is a, a prophet or a teacher and, of course, those who opposed him say that, well, he's filled with demons or other things. But, but here now that it's out in the open, at least amongst the disciples, that he is the Christ, everything changes. 
Now he begins to teach them what it means that he is the Christ. First of all, the necessity of Christ's passion. He says this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Now you have to understand the concept of Christ or Messiah in first century Jerusalem and the surrounding area. They were expecting someone in a geopolitical fashion to throw off the burden of Rome upon them so that they might be free as Jews to practice their religion and perhaps once again have a nation state of Israel like the Old Testament. And so when they thought of the Christ, they were thinking of somebody who might be a military leader, someone who might be a political leader, someone who might be the kind of savior of his people who would reinstate for them a joyful time of prosperity in the promised land. But here's what he says the Christ is. Son of man, a reference perhaps to Daniel 7, where Daniel 7, we see that, that this wonderful figure gets a kingdom that lasts forever. But yet, here is the puzzle. He is going to be a suffering Christ. He must suffer many things, including, including being killed and then ending up being raised from the dead. This is totally contrary to their understanding of what the Messiah would be at this particular point in time. And yet, this is so important. This is the first of three consecutive chapters where Jesus will teach exactly the same thing. In chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. Again, in chapter 10, in verses 32 through 34, he's going to tell them three times in consecutive chapters here in this narrative that the Christ must suffer. He will suffer and die. And of course, what happens when everybody looks at him and sees, could it be that this man is the Christ? And what happens is this. He will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He is thrown out in the test. Here are the, the, the theological leaders of the country, the, the religious people that everyone looks up to, the ones who made decisions for the for all the people, the ones in charge of the worship in the temple, uh, the ones that, that everyone thought would, would know if anyone knew who the Christ was. And they tested him. In fact, they're constantly doing this. And he fails under the scrutiny of men. Notice these men. First of all, presbyters. That's what elders is. It's the word from which we get Presbyterian. The presbyters, the laymen. Those who were called in their communities and in their small groups to, to be the leaders of the people, they rejected Jesus as Christ. He was also rejected by the chief priests. There are at least two of them during this time period. One of them Annas, one of them Caiaphas, one of them who was put in by the Romans, the other one because they were considered by the Jews to be chief priests for life. The other one was still considered the chief priest by many in the Sanhedrin. They too rejected Jesus. And also the scribes, the third group that's listed here. Those who 
would write out copies of the scripture. Those who would study the scripture, those who would teach the people amongst the priests and the Levites. Here they were, they would look at the scriptures and compare and see Jesus' life and ministry and they would say, well, this guy can't be the Christ. In fact, many of them would say exactly the opposite. He's from Satan himself. Complete rejection of the Sanhedrin, that is, all the leaders of the Jewish people. And yet we're reminded again and again, this is not man's Christ, this is God's Christ for man. If we were to look at the Old Testament, you would have to turn to passages like Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Zechariah chapters 9 through 14, and particularly Isaiah 53 where it says that there would be a suffering servant who would take the sins of the people upon himself and offer himself as a ransom for sin. And of course then we're understanding that he's thrown out of the test by men, but when we understand God's purpose, we understand his purpose is that this Christ would be killed. I have to say this is not the kind of leader you necessarily expect, is it? Is this the first, uh, the first qualification for office for our leader in our country is we want them to be killed? No. We think if they're going to be a good leader, an effective leader, they're going to have life and they're going to have all kinds of ways in which they can uh, propose legislation and lead our military and defend our country and, and uh, uphold the Constitution and all those types of things. And the people in Israel thought much the same. But Jesus clearly taught he came to die. He came to be killed by the very people that we would expect would recognize him as Messiah. And then again, this puzzling thing which they certainly did not understand. In fact, the disciples, when they went to the tomb after Jesus was crucified, they certainly still did not understand this last thing, although he says it over and over and over again, he will be raised after three days. In fact, Mark even uses not the passive sense to be raised, he uses the active sense, he will rise. In other words, Jesus the Christ will not stay dead. So here is the necessity of Christ's passion. And it actually says, it is necessary for these things to happen. This must happen for him to be the Christ. If your idea of the Christ is someone who will just be nice to you and kind to you and make you feel better about yourself and perhaps give you some ethereal hope that something better is to come, that's not the Christ that God sent. God sent a Christ who would suffer, who suffered terribly and be killed by the religious leaders of his day, and then raised after three days. But it's not just the necessity of the passion that Jesus is teaching the disciples. Here's what happens. Peter hears this, and he says, this is ridiculous. I didn't sign up for this. I don't want some leader who's going to suffer and be killed. And he takes him and starts to take him aside privately to a corner. And yet we understand that this is probably the idea of all of the disciples here. All 12 of them are probably saying the same thing. Remember, Peter is basically the spokesman of the group. And he takes him aside and he says, Jesus, let me correct you here. 
This isn't really what's going to happen. He says, it doesn't tell us the words here in this particular rendition. But Matthew does tell us the words. He says this, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This is Peter's rebuke about Christ's obedience to these particular things. This was the will of God that would happen. Jesus knew this when he came. He came for the purpose of dying for the sins of his people. He came for the purpose of submitting to this will of God. That's why when Jesus will pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, not your will, or not my will, but yours be done, it's a reminder he came not to, to feel good about life, he came to do the will of God, which included the suffering and the death on the cross. And so Jesus turns to Peter. It says, turning and seeing his disciples. In other words, Peter has taken him aside to say, this certainly shall not happen, never happen under my watch, is what he's saying. Instead, Jesus turns back to the disciples to include them in the conversation. And he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. This is the harshest rebuke of any believer in all of Scripture, to be called Satan. How has, has Jesus' rebuke here? You have Peter's rebuke of Jesus, now Jesus' rebuke of Peter. What is going on here? Peter has just said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus has said, this revealed to you by God. You didn't come up with this on your own. And then here, just a few minutes later, he's telling Peter, you're Satan. What is he doing? He says, because you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, one thing we have to understand, this is the same thing that Jesus already encountered in the wilderness in the early parts of the Gospels. He was tempted by Satan himself not to obey God's plan of salvation, not to go through the passion, but to take a shortcut and worship Satan so that he could have all that he wanted and not have to go through all the tough parts of life. And so he sees in, Peyton, in Peter's rebuke here, he sees the work of Satan because these are not the things of God. You see, our mind must be on things of God. I have to say sometimes the world looks at believers and they tell us, they call us all kinds of names. You born again people. You Bible thumpers. You whatever it is. Right wing nuts. You fill in the blank. Christians after all we're told should take a chill pill. Simply stop emphasizing the Bible so much, stop talking about Jesus so much, and there will be more peace. In fact, if you just have a welcoming atmosphere in church and just bring people and stop talking about sin so much, stop talking about the things that are controversial, stop talking about black and white, you know, things are either true or false, that kind of thing. If you stop talking about all that stuff, we can get along and have more peace. Those are the things of man. The things of God are different. They're controversial. They're upsetting. They're offensive. 
When the world looks at the church and the church tells the world everybody, including the church people, are sinners and cannot save themselves, and the only hope they have is in somebody who died on a cross being convicted of a crime and yet was innocent, the world looks cross-eyed at us and says, stop this foolishness. But yet here, our minds must be set on the things of God. Without Christ crucified, without Christ's obedience, no living person would ever go to heaven. None would have any hope. And so therefore the teaching continues. Not only must we set our mind on the things of God, not only must we be rebuked when they are on the things of man, but our priorities in life must change. It's interesting what he does here. We're reminded there were other people around. Verse 34 says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, in other words, this is an important part that every believer needs to hear. Everyone who believes must hear this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean to deny yourself? This is renouncement of self. He also says, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Now here, at this particular point in time, the idea of a cross has probably not crossed Peter and the disciples' minds yet. Remember, Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. And, of course, this is a Roman punishment that is considered very demeaning to the Jewish people. Not, not only are they hanging on a tree, which is a curse in the Old Testament, but they also would hang without any dignity. And it was because they were convicted of a crime. It was done outside the city of Jerusalem. It was considered such an unclean and awful act. And for them to hear, take up your cross, this is uh, basically taking up that, that beam that a condemned man would carry down the road to his crucifixion. And for them, they don't understand the significance, about, uh, significance of this at this particular point in time. But they know that it's something here that is off the beaten path for their understanding and comprehension. He's saying to them, take up the thing that condemns you, take up this shame and this guilt, take up these things that hinder you and follow Jesus. Now, this indicates very serious stuff. I remember when we lived up in Tennessee, some of the Methodists there had begun to practice a lot of the things that the Catholic Church does around Lent. And around Lent, you perhaps have heard that a lot of people like to give things up. And so I remember one particular friend of ours who loved to go to the local uh, drive through restaurant that is uh, in that area called Pals. And they went to Pals, and they said, well, for Lent, I'm going to give up Pals sweet tea. 
And of course, fill in the blank. You know, what do people give up? They give up, you know, this or that, sugar, salt, whatever it is that they enjoy. And they give these things up. Is that what's going on here? No. He says, renounce or deny self. Now, self might include sweet things, salty things, whatever. But, but you know, that, that's really arcane. It, it, it's just silly. Here's what he says. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? You see, you must be willing to suffer real things. Ridicule. Your reputation. Loss of some kinds. We cannot also neglect the idea that you must be willing. It doesn't mean God's going to necessarily ask this of you. You must be willing to risk your very life. That's what he says here. Your life. Do you realize that 52,000 Nigerians in the last 13 years have died because they're Christians? And the world doesn't even cover it on their news cycles. Almost 200 of them on Christmas Day this last week, this last year. They're willing to risk their life by saying that they're Christians, even when someone comes into their church and seeks to kidnap, rape, and do all kinds of violent destruction upon them. They're willing to risk their life for this. Are you? Now we have to be careful here. This is not just that we're willing to take a stand for rights in the workplace or for free speech or for gun rights or some other bill of rights issue. It's not just merely that, that we want to stand up for moral issues, although these things are very good to stand for. But what does Jesus say? For my sake or for me and the gospel. In other words, Jesus and the gospel about Jesus is the most important thing by which we're willing to die for. Just as Jesus was willing to die for the Father's will of saving his people as the Christ, so those who follow that Christ are willing to suffer and die for his sake. The risk for Christ and the gospel is real. It's risk of an earthly or material gain of any sort. In fact, he says this, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You know, this is so counter to what the world teaches. The world teaches you, you look after number one first. You look after your own interests before you look after the interests of others. Uh, we, we had, particularly when I was young and growing up, you had the self-esteem movement that said, you must feel good about yourself. Find the self-esteem movement in the Bible. You can't. It's not there. And in fact, we should be criticized for talking about how unworthy we are all the time. We're not psychologists that want to tell people how wonderful they are. We're Bible believers who want to tell people how awful they are before they have Christ. 
Because we know that without Christ and the gospel, you have no hope. There is no way you can go into heaven. But with the gospel of Jesus Christ and with a suffering Savior who completely and perfectly obeyed the will of God, if you have turned your life to him, and Luke tells us, you've taken up your cross daily. In case you think, well, I did that back in 1974, or I've done that back 15 years ago, or I, I can remember the moment where I walked the aisle. Yes, those things are important. They're wonderful to celebrate. But we're reminded this is a daily thing that takes place. Is your life going to be about you, or is your life going to be about the kingdom? And in that sense there, we have no shame of Christ. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be shamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Think about that time when those around you ridiculed what believers believe. Or they made fun of you for something you held dear because you thought it was biblical. And think of that time when you laughed with them and said, yeah, that's true. That's shame. He says you should not have that shame. If you're ashamed, ashamed of Jesus, he will be ashamed of you. And I have to say, there's, there's great peer pressure. And it's not just kids, is it? It's people in the, in the business world. It's people in politics. It's people in the sports world. It's people in every sphere of our lives who are telling us that if we are these crazy Christians, then the world does not consider us anything of consequence. But Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, then I'll be ashamed of you on Judgment Day. Instead of that shame, we have confidence in Christ. Now, this isn't the confidence that says, okay, I can, I can jump off a platform and fly up in the sky because I'm a superhero. This is the confidence you have that these words are true and the confidence that Christ really is your Savior and the confidence that Christ has accomplished salvation on your behalf so that you know, as Scripture says, as John tells us, I have written these things so that you might know that you have eternal life. And so Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now first of all, in verse 38 there, he was talking about the second coming. That is judgment day. When the trumpet will be blown, the angels and Jesus will descend and all people will appear before the judgment seat of God and there will be judgment and everyone, every last man, woman, and child will be judged and we're reminded in that moment those who are in Christ will go to heaven, those who are not in Christ will go to judgment. But here's this verse 1 of chapter 9. What is this coming of God's kingdom in power? This is not about the second coming. How do we know that? Because it says some standing here will not taste death until then. In other words, those who are living in the time of Jesus, some of them will see this event. When we see Luke, he says, they will see the kingdom of God, and he stops there. That makes me think that maybe this is perhaps talking about the new birth, that person coming to faith in Jesus Christ. At that moment, they see the kingdom of God with new eyes. 
But yet the context of the Gospels remind us of another event that's coming. Next week we're going to talk about this event called the Transfiguration. And notice how he says, some of you standing here, not all of them, and there are only three of them, Peter, James, and John, who experienced the transfiguration. Peter will tell us the wonders of this in his epistle. So it could be the transfiguration that he's talking about, the coming of God, or the, the coming of Christ in power here. But he also could be talking about the resurrection. The resurrection event was when the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Souls that were dead, people who were dead in their graves, rose up from their graves and walked throughout Jerusalem. Powerful things took place, an earthquake and other things, because Jesus had accomplished the will of God for salvation on the cross. That amazing and powerful things came and the kingdom walked the world. Or perhaps this is the ascension where Jesus went up to come up to heaven. Forty days later, after he was raised from the dead. Or perhaps it was at Pentecost when the Spirit came upon the church with power and the gospel was heard for the first time in the streets of Jerusalem by the witnesses of the apostles and the church grew because people believed the gospel, whatever it is. This is because of confidence in Christ. And some of them would see the kingdom of God with its power because they knew not only that Jesus was the Christ, but at some point event in the future from chapter 8 and 9, they would understand the consequences of this, that Jesus is the suffering servant who died on behalf of his people that we might have life if we have turned from our sins, trusted in him, taken up our cross, and followed him. Both these events remind us again of the fact that this following Christ is a life and death issue. You see, if you're a believer, you recognize there is a true or false here. It's Jesus or nothing. Jesus is God's Christ, the only Christ, the only Messiah who suffered on behalf of his people. Apart from him, you have no hope. And because of that, our life revolves around the kingdom, not the kingdom around our life. Now, there'll be a threefold theme here in Mark 8 to 10. The passion pronouncement. Jesus is going to say two more times, I must suffer and die and rise again. The second thing that happens is the disciples don't get it. And third, Jesus then calls them to humility and service. Here, to, to the great humility of taking up your cross and following him. You see, the cross is central to the gospel. Chapters 1 through the first part of 8 reveal to us who Jesus is by his actions and teaching. But now from this part of the gospel on, it's a reminder that in the cross is our hope because he's the Messiah that Jesus gave us. This is God's Christ, not man's. And we must follow Christ God's way, not ours. And what does Paul say about the gospel? Let any other gospel, even if I tell to you another gospel, let it be anathema. This is a matter of life and death. This is the only gospel that we have that can save people from their sin and the consequences of it. A matter of life and death. This is a new year. If you haven't yet truly sought to take up your cross and follow Jesus, 
Now is the day of salvation. I invite you to come and understand that Jesus alone is Christ. Let your life revolve around him. Let's pray. Lord, as we're about to approach your table, the cost of that table was enormous. Suffering, death, bearing our punishment upon your back. Yet, Lord, the wonder of this table is evident that you did this for the sake of the kingdom and the Father by his will to save, their to save your people from their sins. Father, I pray that as we approach this table, as we understand your grace, as we consider what it means that you are the Christ, Father, that we would rejoice, find joy, and yet, Lord, in a serious nature, reflect upon our lives to see if we truly are taking up our cross daily to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.